if you read any of the the Heath brothers, you know, power moments, one moment I had was I had a nine month pregnant wife and I was on I-10 trying to get to Baton Rouge as Hurricane Katrina was barreling down on New Orleans. I had my first recruiting class in for one day. I told them all to leave and I'm trying to get a hold of them with no cell service. And I'm texting on, on a regular keyboard on a flip phone. So <laughs> at that moment I said, wait a minute, this might not all be about winning the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference Tournament. I got my good friend with me today, Doc Beeman. I've been really excited about this conversation because he he's going to bring a lot of different perspectives from to the table. Coach for a long time, was an assistant head coach, multiple levels, worked in athletic administration, got into um, kind of corporate athletic sales and now works for the 3d institute um but one of his big, larger claims to fame is he claimed to have recruited me down to trinity university in san antonio texas where i had a very marginal one year down there as a baseball player so doc uh, welcome welcome to the show and thanks for having the conversation well, i appreciate it rob and the way i tell the story is i did such a good job recruiting you that uh my head coach said that's the best you can do and he sent me uh sent me up to georgetown university so i never had the pleasure of actually coaching rob but uh i think that was uh that was one of those times where when you know somebody comes in and you're a young assistant and they they speak a language that uh that, that you agree with, you convince them to come and then you leave. It's the, the nasty side of college athletics, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm very glad you found your path and, and where you ended up because I I'm glad to be on this call today, this 20 some years later, almost. So, yeah, well, I think that, um, yeah, I think that's where yeah. my career went wrong is when you left. Cause I, I think I hit two, I think <laughs> I, I hit 250 that next year. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. And then you, uh, you, you took it to me on the field when we coached against each other later in life. It's, it's odd <laughs> that we ended up back in the Midwest. So uh, that's pretty fun. Uh, well, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. Cool. Well, take two or three minutes. Don't give us your life story, but you know, we're talking about leading this generation of athlete generation Z 3d coaching, give it kind of take two or three minutes and tell us based on your background, why people should listen to what you have to say. Well, I think there's a uh, there, there's a history that I have that that kind of it, it spans a couple of different generations, and and so as a member, you know, if we're going to talk about use the terms, you know, if I'm a I'm a Gen X guy, so we got the internet at Trinity. I actually went to Trinity as well. We got the internet at Trinity my senior year, hardwired into the dorm. We were the first dorm to have it. Um, so I I started there recruiting. Um, kids who had just discovered AOL, things like that. And, uh, and so I spent the next basically 20 years or 17 years in college athletics, just seeing the evolution of, of the athlete. But more importantly, over those 17 years, I evolved as a human being because, you know, I went from a 22 year old, uh, win at all costs, uber competitor as I was an, as an athlete to a parent and started recognizing what actually matters at the collegiate level. So it was, it was, a, it was a very interesting ride. So, you know, the, the long story short on my resume is, you know, 17 years I did, um, six years in NCAA, two at the Division I level, four at the uh, Division three level, and then 
11 years as a head coach and three as an administrator at the NAIA level. So um, after uh, after that amount of time, I had a seven and nine-year-old daughter and I decided that I wanted to spend more time with them. And, you know, college baseball coaches work 45 weekends a year. And so looked for, I wanted to stay around the game. I, I got a job selling sporting goods and uh, was able to stay, keep my kids where they were in school and, and stay around this area and, and did that for about three years and realized how empty that was for a coach. And, you know, I was having great success financially. I enjoyed my job, but I needed a team again. And so I went into management and did that for another four years. Um, and along the way, I, I wanted to help, you know, I was selling uh, stuff to friends university. I wanted to help my, my friend Rob uh, work with these athletes and, and work with these coaches and give him more than a discount on shoulder pads. So what, what I ended up doing was finding what was working in the, in the coaches development realm at, with the, with the blessing of my, my company and partnered with them for about a year. And, and the company I found was 3d Institute. And I, I went through all of their training. I'm, I'm a binge guy. So I got access to the training. I went through all of it in a weekend and and I called Wes Simmons, our CEO. And I said, we've got to do something with you. And we did for about a year. And um, after that year, he said, well, we're, we're either going to do this or we're not. And he brought me on about two years ago. So that's how I got where I am now with, with 3D Institute. And uh, I can tell that story for two and a half hours or I can tell it as I just did. <laughs> so if you want to expand on it, you got to ask some questions. Well, I think it's interesting you talk about your evolution, you brought up your family. Um, talk about how your purpose in coaching changed over time. Well, I, I don't, I always feel like I'm a one up guy uh, and I don't ever want to be that, but I really kind of had that, uh, you, you know, if, if you read any of the, the Heath brothers, you know, power moments, one moment I had was I had a nine month pregnant wife and I was on I-10 trying to get to Baton Rouge as Hurricane Katrina was barreling down on New Orleans. I had my first recruiting class in for one day. I told them all to leave, and I'm trying to get a hold of them with no cell service. And I'm texting on, on a regular keyboard on a flip phone. So <laughs> at that moment, I said, wait a minute, this might not all be about winning the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference Tournament. This is more about this transition period for these, these kids in, in a, in a very important part of their life. And then obviously for me, um, you know, looking at my wife who doesn't know where she's going to have a baby, leaving her obstetrician, all of these different things. And, and I kind of, you know, I had to re-recruit my team that fall. And, and that's, that's difficult because as you, you get your first head coaching job, I recruited 25 or 35 kids from 25 States. I went nationwide. It was unbelievable. And I had to redo it from my in-laws house with a newborn baby and, um, you know, five different people whose houses were destroyed living in being blessed that my house wasn't destroyed living in my home in, in Louisiana. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time, but at that point, my wife said, you know, you've been so, um, focused on trying to win, trying to win, trying to win. Why don't you just get back to the reason you chose a small school and realize why these kids are coming there and what you can do for them. And that was sort of when I, I made that switch. And that doesn't mean I didn't falter and make some poor decisions in the next 11 years or 10 years, but that was when it really changed for me was I can, I, I'm not just a baseball coach and just winning for these 35 kids doesn't matter when, you know, literally one of them is being 
taken off of the top of a hospital in Blackhawk because he wouldn't leave his girlfriend who was a, a nurse. Like it was those kind of stories. It, it just makes it very hard to uh, to look at, the, at those situations and say, yeah, this is all about, you know, wins and losses. There's I, I'm a big Joe Ehrman fan. And we actually ask in all our interview processes now his four questions that he thinks coaches can answer. And, um, and one of them is, um, how does it feel to be coached by you? You know, how does it feel to be coached by me and led by me? Curious, you, you talk about this transformation. Was there any difference on, you think, how it felt to be coached by you, say, Doc Beeman at age 25, then Doc Beeman at age 40? Um, kind of contrast that for me if there is something there. Yeah, I think at age 40, my perspective, and that was, that was my last year of coaching. I was... Um, I actually turned 40 after I retired, but it, I turned 40 that year. And I would say the last three years I coached, I really got it because I got to see my daughters be able to go out and interact with the team on the field. And I had made a decision probably four years earlier in a real, this, you know, I always look back and the one decision I wish I had made differently, I didn't make in a year that we had a lot of success. And I think I could have, I, I could have made some decisions that would have made the next two years easier. But once I started, once I realized that and started making better decisions over those two years, those last three, I think the kids knew I loved them and they wanted to play for each other. And to me, that is all you can, no, it's not all you can do as a coach, but that should be your goal as a coach is to, to see your kids to know you love them and that they want to, they don't want to disappoint the, the guy next to them. And that's, uh, you know, that's, I think where we got and we had a lot of fun and, you know, kids are kids. They're still going to be upset. There's still only nine players in the lineup every game and 35 on your roster. But when you, when you actually sit back and take a look at it is I hope, um, that those kids thought that and, um, you know, you'd have to ask some of them. I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but that was the intent. And, you know, thankfully now that I've been through 3D training, I understand the the language around it. You know, I never could put a language to what I experienced throughout the, you know, the changes in, in how I coached. But now I, I kind of understand that, you know, I, I think, I feel like I led with love in, in those last three years. And I always tried to, I mean, I'm, I'm a loving human being, but you know, now I, now that I look back, I, I wish I had had that language probably when I was just starting out because, you know, I know another one of Joe's uh, questions is, you know, how are you coached? And we both played for a coach. So we, we, we have a shared coach. So you understand uh, how that yeah. felt too. So yeah. <laughs> there are one of our coaches here is because we've gone, I mean, we've, you know, this as of about a year ago, we said we're all in on 3D as a department, and it's the language we're evolving to use. But one one saying it's evolved out of that from one of our coaches is he wants his kids to say coaches for me. And, uh -huh. you know, that can look a lot of different ways. That can be the disciplinary and that can be the lighthearted and kind of gregarious coach. But I, that's what I hear you saying a little bit. Coach that loves me, coaches for me. And often I think we get that wrong in leadership where it becomes combative or are, are the people that follow us or are in our charge or the teams don't think coaches for them because it's so attacking all the time. And um, so, yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. Want to want to transition a little bit to your role at 3D, the 3D Institute now. 
you, you talk to a ton of coaches and other leaders in athletics, I assume. What do you, very broad question, but what do you see as the state of sport right now in our, in our country? Well, in the country, I, I think the status of sport is it has, it's now corporate. And, and that's the easiest way to look at it is youth sports have been made corporate. You literally have investment firms investing in youth sports groups. Um, and you, that does a lot to, to make it more performative. And, and so the identity of a seven-year-old is performative because there's a big ring at the end and, you know, you have people traveling for eight U uh, tournaments. And to me, it really does a disservice to the high school sport space, middle school and high school, because um, I think that's where, you know, I, I always say to a middle school coach or, or a high school coach, you are the first coach that these parents did not choose for their child. And so, you know, throughout the, the youth sport, uh, ecosystem you you see you know well we, we're gonna put 11 players on this baseball team so all the kids play well you know at what point does it become a meritocracy and and how are kids prepared to do that and how are the parents aiding and abetting that how are um how are the youth organizations handling that and what can be done better to inject play back into youth sports i think that's where I see a lack of play in youth sports and true, you know, freedom for these kids. And I will, you know, I have two daughters. I'm not going to say that, uh, that's all we did. <laughs> I'm part of the problem as they say as well, but that would be, it is what, what, what does sports represent to the youth today? Is it prestige? Is it their identity? Is it, you know, something fun to do. And I think we, they can be a lot of those different things can be melded into one, but I would say that's probably the biggest piece is what, what is, why are kids playing now? How did we, how did we get there? Get to this point. I totally agree with everything you just said. How, how did, how did we get here? I don't know. Um, this is, I, I always go back and forth. And the, the great thing about being at 3D Institute now is the people that that started 3D Institute, you know, 10 years ago, I still get to work with with all of them. And I get to have a conversation with Jeff Duke and I get to talk to, you know, Mark Hole and, and Wes Simmons. And they kind of built out the, the first couple of courses of this and they challenge me routinely. You know, I'm I have a pretty good background and I I try to read a lot and study a lot. And every time I bring something up with a new idea, I get challenged backwards you know, they're like, well, you got to explain why, why you believe that. So when I look at why this happened, I've had a lot of different ideas on it. You know, part of me says it's the, everybody gets a trophy culture. And, but I just argued against that by saying that seven-year-olds are going to a national tournament where you get a giant ring. Um, maybe everybody should get a trophy now and we're not playing for the trophy. We're just playing to play. And, congratulations, you played. Here's something to recognize that. I don't, so I keep going back and forth, but I think another reason we got there is because I, I think parents want so badly for their kids to have experience, have experiences that are positive, that they're trying to craft the experiences for them. I think it was Tom Izzo 
said something and then it was uh it was a sports center uh anchor who 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 attributed this this quote this is where i remember it i know he didn't come scott van pelt he said you know parents right now are instead of preparing kids for the path preparing the path for kids and as a Mm -hmm. parent now i really get it the worst thing in the world is to watch your kid have to live a lived experience because it's not a lived experience until it's been lived and you want to help them with it and so um you have that you when you when you watch a kid struggle to walk when they're you know nine months to you know 18 months i don't know when kids walk that's what my wife does for a living she'll tell me but when when you're watching that struggle it would be really easy to go over and and grab the kid's hand and 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 get that kid to walk but you have to watch because you're not going to learn unless you fall and and i think we've we've removed a lot of that in some of those youth sports and um, and I get why, because nobody wants to watch their kid fall, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking about the impact of all you're talking about on our level at the collegiate level. So I feel like a lot of the issues, I'm, I'm the athletic director at Friends University. So a lot of the issues that I end up dealing with are conflict of coaches and student athletes. And ultimately it's identity issues where they've had their their families' lives often have been invested in this sport thing. And then they get here, they think small school, you know, whatever. Everybody's pretty good here too, and they don't play. And the investment of the last 15 years and the identity that came along with that just comes to to crumble. And it, it feels like an important part of our work. And I'm thinking of one kid right now who's a football player for us that was a big school Kansas City area quarterback and He's he's a marginal college athlete in terms of getting to play. He's been our backup quarterback. Kids graduate. The coach out recruits him. This kid has never said a word. I've never heard from his parents. And he's the best teammate ever. And it's like, we miss this piece of, that's the dude I want to hire. <laughs> you know, I think right. that kid's lived the, I, I think the most growth can come from the experience that kid had, not the kid being the star. But there's just so much involved with all of that, that, it, that it's hard for people to manage because you love your kids, your kids want to have success and there's just so much emotion involved. Yeah. And I think defining success is, has changed. And, and so when you look at, I mean, you think about it, it's seven to 10%, depending on the sport of high school athletes will actually be on a, a college roster at any one point. And that's probably a little high because you have, you know, if you play high school hockey, you got a really good chance of going to play college because yeah. it's just so it's a smaller pool. But when when you look at at when you look at the success that you've already had to even get a letter from Friends University or Benedictine College or, you know, to, to get that letter and to be to to feel wanted and, and needed, that that's a success. And then you have to get there and it starts over to be the, as success, you know, to be recruited to friends, like you said you have to be, you're the, you're the three hole hitter on your team. You're the shortstop. You're the Friday yeah. night guy. You are I'm, all of those suck. things. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You're, you're all of those things where you are now. And then it starts over immediately because guess what? Everybody else there was that too. And so as you keep rising in meritocracy, that's difficult for somebody who's, who's, you know, to be fair, not felt a ton of failure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can lose a game, but you're still the guy. You're still the gal. You're still, you know, the dude. And so I think that's where, you know, that, that next level, every level you go up, it's, it's humbling. And, and I think, I don't, I don't think humility is learned. Humility shouldn't be learned at 11. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, you should learn a little bit of humility at 11, but you shouldn't be so humbled that you quit the sport at 11. Um, but, but you should also learn to grow from, from that humility. So that, it is interesting. And so how we got here, I don't know. And I mean, there are a lot of people who, uh, who, who claim to know, and, and want to try to fix it. And, you know, at 3D Institute, we'll, we'll work with anybody who's, who seems to have a solution and, and wants to, uh, wants to try to remedy any situation. But, you know, we, we know that the more, the better coaches you have, the, the more involved the kids are going to be in the success of the team and the happier the parents are going to be in their child's experience. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's our aim. And, if anybody who's listening to this has the answers, reach out to us because we we we're, we're still searching as well. Well, that's and I don't want this to be an infomercial for 3D, but that's why I'm involved in it. I, somebody told me once I dug into it; they're absolutely right. Of in some ways, the rest of the world is laughing at us on how we train coaches because it's essentially, hey, you played this sport growing up, you want to coach? Here's your whistle and go. And we don't train people. And it's not easy to teach. It's not easy to mold a team. It's not easy to do really the second and third dimensions of 3D with goal setting, motivation, confidence, getting the heart of the athlete. And I mean, in my opinion, we need to make over the whole deal, but I don't know how you do it. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we build an infrastructure in our sports to, to train coaches to coach well and cultivate environments? Well, you know what's interesting is... I had a conversation with the principal at my daughter's high school and I I said to him, we are staying in the soccer game. And I said, what do you have coming up? And he said, well, we have graduation. We have end of the year testing. And, and I said, okay. I said, how's that going to go? And he said, I said, you know, is that COVID gap going to affect the testing? And, and he said, he said, we've done everything we could with the high school kids with the COVID gap. He said, the ones that are really hurt were the, you know, the younger ones we have a pretty good idea by third grade where somebody's going to land in reading because it happens that early. Wow. And, and like I told you, my wife is a, you know, she's an early childhood specialist. That's what she does for a living. And so, you know, she, she says the same thing. They look at all these benchmarks, try to get books in front of kids, all of those different, those different things. But what we, what we need to make sure of is that we're, we're starting with the first coaches that kids have our parents. So I look at it like, you know, let's, let's make sure that the coaches who first have these kids understand what's important. And to me, that's play at at that level. And, and so their organization, so we need to champion the organizations who are doing it well, whether it's a local parks and rec or some other, some other piece. Um, but you know, if you're paying $3,000 to, um, I'm just going to say, I don't, I don't want to disband the club, but you know, bigsoccer.com when your kid's eight, well, they're going to keep telling you whatever you need to hear to get their $3,000. So it's, it, it's kind of a situation that let's, let's get, you know, bigsoccer.com to believe in, you know, developing the kid, putting, injecting play back into it. So by the time they get to the middle school and high school level, they can truly enjoy um, what, 
what I call a coach, a team and a cause, you know, now you're with your community. You can play with your community's name or your, your school's name on your chest and, and go for something with your friends. Like to me, that's cool. That's fun. And only one team at the end of the year (laughs) wins their last game. So, I mean, that's, you know, that, so the experience for most kids who get to do that is not winning a state championship. It is, it is going after something competing and, and knowing that you did it for your community. And, and I think if the, the sooner we can get back to that, the better. And, you know, if it takes a club to, to train up a, a group of girls to get together on, on a bunch of different, um, clubs, that's great. I, you know, I got to experience, I, I see the lens, my lens is my kids when I'm looking at youth sports and, um, my, my kids are very fortunate in soccer to have a coach who over the past six or seven years has, has kept this, this group of kids playing soccer. We're not in a big uh, club, but when we played, uh, you know, a local high school, there are seven kids taking a picture together, playing for their high school, you know, four red jerseys, three orange jerseys. And then, you know, we play another local high school and you have seven red, jer- you know, seven blue jerseys and, and, and six red jerseys. And so you get to see all these kids who compete together in the off season and then against each other for their hometowns. I think that's healthy competition. And, and I want to see more of that. So, yeah. And my bias on all these is my experience, but my best memories are just playing with my buddies, you know, and I, I hope those friendships are cultivated like that where, where it happens. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I have the, the pleasure of working from a home office and, uh, and, and I have a window. I'm, I'm on the second floor of my house and, and I live next door to, um, a family with three boys and it, nothing makes me happier than when I look out and I see just a group of kids playing with no parents. They're making up their own rules. Kids are getting upset. They settle it there. Then they keep playing. You know, a kid will cry and then another kid will go over, put his arm around him and say, you'll be all right. And then they'll keep playing again and, and they're competing and, and you're, and we're spanning big age gaps. And to me, that's, that's what, um, you know, that's what's really cool. And then we're going to put them in a uniform and we're going to start keeping score and we're going to have stats and we're going to send highlight videos on Facebook and YouTube and, really all they want to do is go outside and make up a game where everybody gets to hit all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, nobody wants to be great at left field. They want to hit. So it's, you know, that, that to me is, is something that, you know, I, I, I sound old and, and curmudgeonly, but that's how I grew up. We had home run mm-hmm. derby. We knew exactly how much it cost to replace a panel of window because that was behind home plate. It's the only way the field worked. We looked at a bunch of different things. Um, and so I think that's where, that's where I would like to see it get back to. And, you know, we're fortunate that there are pockets of that all, all across the country. And, and I, and I think that's, you know, I think we need to champion it and I think we need to, uh, we, we need to appreciate it. Agreed. Other than you were a pitcher, you were never actually hitting the home runs. So I want to move us to, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the research coming about Generation Z or this generation, which is really post 2000, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and how we work with them, what it looks like. So I'm curious, talk about how you think this generation of 
young adults coming up are the same and how they are different from previous generations? Well, I mean, they're the same in the sense that, uh, you know, the their wants and needs as as human beings are similar. They're different in the amount of stimulus that they've received in their in their formative years. So I've I've fallen into, you know, the easiest way for me to get my kid to come do something is to send them a text. Like if I'm in, in the same house. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I will always admit to being part of the problem. But w- what we what we see is how much information they have received and how quickly. Because um I, I think that's gonna be the biggest issue they have. And you know, if you look at even just in the last three months, it, you know, people my age and, you know, the millennials and, and Gen X, I, some baby boomers are probably doing it. But, you know, how, how fascinated Gen X and millennials have been with chat GPT and it is that, that Gen Z, the, the current generation are not phased by it at all. They're like, yeah, this is, I should be able to have access to every bit of information in known history right now. And, and all of us are like, I'm going to just try to figure out how to do an Excel formula. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm going to finally master this thing that, uh, that I got on my computer that can help me with my finances. Like, so I, I think that's the difference is these kids have the same wants, needs, desires. Um, you saw Harrison Butker give the Georgia Tech commencement address. And I don't, I don't know if you got to see it, but I haven't said, seen it. He said, if you want to go out and have a great impact on this world, do something. He almost said, "Do something counterculture and get married and raise a family." Hmm. And uh, and so I look at that and I say, you know what? Everybody has that desire, but they have so much stimulus. It's almost like you can put off that desire. I mean, it, that's just human nature, right? And I don't want to get too too much into that. But um, you you have access to so many different things that can be put off further now. You know, you can have a, you can start your family at 40. You can do these different things. So, I mean, to me, that's the difference is there are so many different options now that have been, that technology has provided for this generation that it's changing a little bit of the way, um, a little bit of the way they perceive the world or the world is not, not that they perceive it. It's changed the way that the world is presented to them. And, and I don't, uh, it, I'm not even saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's different. Here's something I, I'm trying to formulate a thought over the last year because I'm stealing this from somebody, but to lead this generation, you have to know what you're talking about because they can go Google anything and see if you're full of it and you have to be authentic. And somehow this, this group, they, they have so much stimuli, they're better online, overgeneralizing there, but interact online more than in person, especially at younger ages. But I think they can they can smell out a fraud, especially with the coach, more quickly than like I could. I was going to blindly trust a coach most of the time, but they can sense a fraud if they know what they're talking about. If they're not real, and they will bail. And one way I see that with our coaches is often the coaches know more, but they have to hear kids out on the why we're doing whatever. And sit there and listen and have the conversation, not just say, no, we're not doing this. Get out of here. Right. Reaction no. to that? Do you agree, disagree? I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm right, but I think it's what I'm seeing. 
Yeah, that definitely is happening. And, and I think there are, there are a couple of different kind of, there, there are a couple of different reasons for, to, to kind of satiate that need to know why with this generation. And, and I think it's important because I, I think kids these days, and I'm, I'm saying kids about 22 year old grown, <laughs> grown men on a college football team. But kids, kids these days, you sound kids, old. Kids do need to understand why, why you're saying what you're saying, why you're doing what you're doing. However, they're also, this is what I said when, when I keep going back and forth on, you know, cause I've, I've spanned these couple different generations. Sometimes it, it just, because I said so is, should be adequate. I, I agree mm-hmm. with you is, you know, I, I, I would ask a coach why when I was in college and it, sometimes I'd get a why sometimes I'd get, because I, you know, because I'm in charge and one day you will be. And, you know, looking back, even if you have a why you don't know what that coaches, you know, I, I always, mm-hmm. I, you know, if, I always say you got to understand what a coach is going through on that day too, you know, and, and you know that cause you've coached <laughs> kids and you've the left coach and, is a person too. Right. And, and so, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I know this is good for you. I don't have time to explain it to you. Just, just get it done so we can go on. Um, but I think that's, you know, if you spend all your time explaining why, um, you know, we, we want to, we want to probably as a coach get to a level of trust where, not everything is has to be questioned because your your players understand that you care about them as a person and that you're not going to put them in a position that uh, that that could harm them or or you know you're not going to do anything on a whim and so to me that's where you have to get with them is is to the point where okay we're not going to we're not going to do this just because it's something to do. We're going to do this because you understand my, you understand why, why I do what I do. So just trust the process. And so you want to get into that, that trust situation, I think sooner than later. And that's not, and I, and I think what you're saying is it's, it takes a little while longer to get to that because we had blind trust when we were playing. And now you have to have earned trust, I think would would be the way I would, I would say that. That's much better said than than what how I how I took said me, it. Took me a while to get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to go one more place. It feels like a natural natural place to go. Um, I'm also a big Tim Elmore fan, and um, I heard him speak recently about Generation Z and leading Generation Z, and it was it was it was fascinating. Um, we could talk. For, I could talk for hours asking questions on it. But one thing he said that impacted me is we need to get we need to begin with empathy to get to grit. So starting with empathy to get to essentially resilience and toughness with this generation. Thoughts. That's interesting. Um, I I would say that's, there's no, I'm I'm trying to, to straw man it. I, I don't see an argument against it. And as if, if I were to steel man it and say, yeah, you need to know where the kid currently is. You need to know kind of how the kids, a little bit about the kid's path to, to where they currently are. And 
if you don't understand that, you know, getting them to where you want them to be, which would be grit in this situation, is going to be much more difficult. So you you have to understand, you know, sort of how they got to where they are. And so I would call if if we're if we're using that language, I would say that would be empathetic. Like that would be empathy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kids need to know that you care. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, and understanding is the basis of care. And, you know, and that's one of our modules actually, but if you don't understand where that kid is, how are you going to be able to to care for them. And, and that care is sometimes putting them, you know, getting them on a path that they didn't know they needed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, you're not going to get there. Not, I mean, I, I'm telling you as a parent of, you know, what I consider to be pretty good kids. Um, sometimes I'm too, too tough on them. And that's, that's hard for me because my parents were, you know, silently tough on me. It was, it was never overt or verbal, but you know, when we lost both my parents in the last five years and my brothers would sit around and talk and we'd say, wow, we had a high level of expectation on us. That was, you know, it was, it was never a raised voice. It was never anything else. It was, we didn't want to disappoint our parents and it was understood. Um, and, and I think, you know, nobody ever asked why <laughs> it was just <laughs> how it was. So now, you know, the kids want to know why. It's like, why do you, why do you care what I get in Spanish? Well, here's why. And, you know, because I know you're capable. And so there, there is a lot more explanation now. And and I think that understanding is important and it helps us grow as, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a Gen X guy. I think uh, Tim Elmore calls me a slacker, which is fine. Um, <laughs> Cause I, trust me, I, I know I did my, my share of it in the past, but I think that's where, I think that's where he is. He's spot on in, in saying, yeah, if you, if you don't, if you don't understand, it's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to help. And I think where this one gets hard is, you know, what's the practicality for a coach on the ground and empathy to get to grit. I can see it on a 10 person golf team. You know, that, that I can, I can think of the system and the personal interactions to, to get there. When you throw it at a 125 person football team, I, the system to get there fears challenging. And I go to, you know, I know you're a, you're a fan of Steve Magnus do hard things. And he says toughness and I'm using grit and toughness synonymously. I don't know if that's technically accurate, but he says an environment of psychological safety. So not, not safe space. Everybody gets a trophy, but psychological safety, where if I follow the rules of the community, even if I don't perform, I still get to be on the team. Mm-hmm. Number one. And then number two is I'm in an environment where I can get better. If those two things are in place, that develops toughness within a, within a team, within a community. And that, that feels more tangible to me than just empathy to grit. But I, I think it's the two, I think it's two things saying the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. And, and I think the, the freedom to fail is so important. Yeah. Not the freedom, but yeah, that's psychological safety. And um, there's a, there's a coach at the coach at Benedict and I've, I've listened to him speak a couple of times. He's, he, he's got a lot of stuff that he puts together and, you know, I, I like to go and listen to something, take one thing with it, but they have, um, they have a, a day in their practice schedule called freedom Friday. And, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll show up 
is it Freedom Friday? Anyway, he's got he's got a theme each day on on what they do, and one of them is, and it may be Friday, it may not, but they get to go out and they have to make all plus plays. So they have to dive. They have to make the the hot dog play. They have to do all of these different things because he wants them to have the freedom to do it in a game. And if you don't ever practice it, how are you going to have that freedom in a game? And on Freedom Friday, I think it's Freedom Friday. If it's not, I apologize to uh, to coach. But what what ends up happening is these kids turn the fear of diving towards the line. Like you and I are baseball coaches never dive towards the line as a right fielder, right? <laughs> Cause everybody's gonna, you know, that's, that's a common thing, but on that Friday you can. So when it really comes down to it in the game, you know, whether you make that play or not, you know that you have the freedom to do it. So I love that psychological safety of, you know, you, you gotta have that freedom to fail. And, and I think that's where you, you've got to craft those, uh, you know, so that's that's an example of a, of a strategy to put into a practice to uh, to show psychological safety. And um, and so that's that to me is if you can keep putting those into your practice plans, it doesn't have to be every day. He does it once a week, um, you know, to have a strategy to to give the freedom to fail, I, I think, is is a positive attribute. Yeah, that's good stuff. I'm going to, unless you have any other thoughts to finish with, I'm going to transition to, to the, the rapid fire round. Any other, any other thoughts on any of the topics we covered? No, but I will tell you that we could probably hit record and, and talk for another seven to 10 hours. And I, I, I'd, I'd discover some things and you'd discover some things. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad you're doing this with a bunch of different people because, uh, you know, we, we all want to see the world of sport be, the best it can be in what we envision. And so before we go to rapid fire, I'm just, I'm going to thank you for the, for the time and in, in doing this, not just with me, but uh, with, with the other individuals that you're bringing up. It's been fun. I'm just feel like I'm learning so much. So um, feelings mutual on that with you. All right. Rapid fire. You can't, and this may be hard for you. You can't spend more than 30 seconds answering any of these questions. All right. Great. You ready? Yeah. Okay. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? I have given the book, um, do hard things the most. And, and why is because I read it, uh, my first time going through and reading it, I, I took a scan of eight pages and sent it to my whole family and thought, this is going to be one I'm going to keep reading. It's on my daughter's nightstand right now. Nice. How has a failure set you up for a later success? Or another said another way, do you have a favorite failure? I think my favorite failure, I, I alluded to it earlier, is I was uh, I made a decision in in a baseball season to not do something. And I realized that not doing something is also a decision. And I saw the consequences of of not doing it over the next two years. And um so it's not a favorite failure, but it's one I look back on and say, I learned the most from it because I went after winning over culture and it hurt the culture more than it would have. I think it would have been uh, a, po- a net positive if I had uh, made that decision. Cool. Favorite non-work related podcast. My, it, it changes all the time. And I will say 
right now I like irreverent. So I listened to this past weekend with Theo Vaughn. In less than 30 seconds, how do you define success in your work? Success in my work is to have others understand that success is not always that success is not limited to on field and that to be truly successful, you have to start aiming for significance. Well said. Last question. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? In the last five years, I would say my biggest habit has, or my biggest habit that I have used in the last five years is I am very aware of how much sleep I get, which became easier as my kids got older and started having their own routines. I understand it's not easy for those with young children, but now that mine are a little bit older and they can make their own breakfast and drive themselves to school, <laughs> I really focused on making sure that I get, and I'm going to, I'm going to upset people eight to nine hours of sleep a night. <laughs> I admire that and I'm jealous. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Doc. I learned a lot, admire the work you're doing. And um, yeah, I feel like we have these conversations all the time. And now this is just a getting a recording. So I'm looking forward to the next one. That's great. I appreciate you and, and all you're doing. And uh, we need to catch up on the personal stuff next week. Sounds Beyond Coaching is a podcast of the Impactful Coaching Project in partnership with Friends University. The Impactful Coaching Project seeks to develop coaches that coach the whole person. The Impactful Coaching Project is the thought leader in coaching the 21st century athlete and produces training, information, and original research to help coaches develop. For more information, check out impactfulcoachingproject.substack.com. Thank you for listening.